story of my life. Uh, I'm president of Penn American Center. I want to welcome you on behalf of the center and our Freedom to Write Committee, and in particular, committee member Martha Lear, who has been very much responsible for creating this evening. One purpose of this occasion is to provide an overview of First Amendment issues during the past year, what has happened in this area, what is likely to be the consequence of what has happened. Another purpose is to stimulate consideration of where you in the audience stand on these issues. And if you haven't thought about one or the other of them, to hope that you may now begin to do so. I think it's going to be an exciting evening. We have a wonderful panel here. And if it proves to be as exciting as we expect, we may try to make it a Penn annual event. The biographies of the various panelists are in front of you. I'm going to allow our distinguished moderator, Kathleen Sullivan, to say a few words about them, although they're clearly identified either by these uh, wonderful identifications or their eminence. Let me say just a word about Kathleen Sullivan, the moderator. She's a professor of law at Harvard University Law School, where she's taught since 1984. I'm sure some of you have seen her on television fairly recently. She's at present visiting professor at the University of Southern California and Stanford Law Schools. She's argued many cases in front of the Supreme Court, as your biography says, both constitutional and criminal cases. And she's working on what seems to me a very interesting book about not only the First Amendment, but an issue that is of vital importance to Penn American Center, the battle over content restrictions on the National Endowment for the Arts. I look forward very much to seeing that book and to hearing you tonight. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming. We're going to do a little improvisational theater tonight. And the dramatis personae, I will give just a brief introduction. They truly do not need introduction, but starting from this end of the table, Morley Safer, whom you know from CBS and 60 Minutes, just returned to be here with us from India. Uh, so it's 5.30 in the morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, <laughs> Next to Mr. Safer, John Powell, who is the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, that group of card-carrying members of which uh, have played such an important role in defending freedom of expression. Uh, next to Mr. Pat, yes, Mr. Powell. Next to Mr. Powell, the great playwright Arthur Miller. Uh, and on this side of the table, this is not a presidential debate, uh, but on this side of the table, starting right next to me, is Mr. Uh, ben Bradley of the Washington Post. Next to him, Judith Krug, who is the director of the American Library Association. And the cleanup batter over here is Professor Stephen Carter, 
of the Yale Law School and also author of the book Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby, just out and widely publicized. Welcome to Utopia City College. Utopia City College is a public institution, and so, of course, it's bound by the First Amendment. I'd like you to meet a young man who goes to Utopia City College, a talented young student and writer named Joe Buck. Joe's a white fellow from a working-class family who's very angry. He feels that Utopia City College is becoming taken over by minority students who are admitted through quotas, that its curriculum is going over to multicultural agendas rather than the great European curriculum he expected to find there. And he's not keeping his anger to himself. Joe's been giving speeches to large crowds outside the student union at lunchtime when students are funneling in to eat their lunch. And here's a sample of his speech. He gets up on his soapbox and he says things like, I believe that black people are biologically inferior to whites. And I have the statistics to prove it. And he goes on about that. He talks about the natural inferiority of black people. And he says, and the black students here at Utopia City College, they're getting in not through hard work like I did, but through handouts from the state. And white students should protest this. Some people listen. Some people move on. But some people are very angry about Joe Buck. Mr. Powell, you're the chancellor of Utopia City College. You run this institution. A number of students have come to you and said, Chancellor Powell, you've got to do something about Joe Buck. You've got to stop these speeches. Are you going to stop these speeches? No. Why not? Well, I mean, there are a number of reasons. First of all, uh, Joe Buck is expressing his opinion. And it's an opinion while, uh, as a university chancellor, uh, I I find it uh, abhorrent. I also think he has a right to express it. What I might do. You find is, it abhorrent. Right. And he's, he's preaching race hate, racial propaganda. Isn't it more than abhorrent? Well, the thing is, he's expressing his opinion about uh, whether black people are inferior, why they're at the school. And um, it may or may not be race hate. But even if it was race hate, he has a right to, to preach that under certain contexts. There are certain situations where you would not be allowed to do that. What situation would it take to get you to silence Joe Buck? Well, one thing, if Joe Buck was uh, a first-year history professor in a required course, uh, <laughs> I would, I would <laughs> <laughs> and teaching during the course of his uh, course itself, or worse yet, if he was a, a physics teacher teaching a first-year physics course that was a required course, and he decided to leave physics and dabble in biology. Uh, I think in that situation where students are forced to listen to um, something that they might not want to listen to, then you have a very different uh, situation. I see. So this is a public square. This is an open space. This is like Central Park. This is a place where people can get up on soapboxes and say anything they want. It's only if, 
it's in the curriculum that you're going to stop Joe from preaching race hate. No, uh, not only in the curriculum, but that's where, one place. When else? Well, I think uh, <coughs> there are a number of places. For example, if uh, Joe Buck was sticking uh, flyers that um, reflected his, his uh, position under people's doors in their, in their dormitories, for example, and there are many others. But I think that the university, as the University of Chancellor, even in the public forum, I would do something. Uh, but I would not do something, the something I would do would not include silencing Joe Biden. You're not going to kick him out of school. No. And you're not going to tell him he can't speak there. No. Let me press you on this. Let me introduce you to another student at Utopia City College, a young man named Jesse Hall. Jesse also worked hard to be at Utopia City. But he comes from a black working class family. And he happens to be openly gay. And he tells you about a new twist in Joe's speeches. Now Joe's standing up, not just denouncing black people as biologically inferior, but he's saying faggots should die of AIDS. And Jesse comes to you and says, it was bad enough when he called me a nigger out there in front of the student union. And it was bad enough when he said black people are inferior. And it was bad enough when he put down my hard efforts to be here as affirmative action. But this is beyond the pale. Chancellor Powell, I can't get my equal educational opportunity here if you let Joe poison the minds of everyone who walks in the student union with this kind of racist, homophobic garbage. I would need you to stop him in order to let me study here. Please stop him. What do you tell Jesse? Well, a, a couple of things. I think that in terms of uh, the power of Joe's speech to influence people, um, I think it's not, it's not at all clear, and I don't think it ever is clear how powerful his message is. The fact that he says something um, can be addressed, I think, best by the chancellor, by the school, taking a very aggressive. Let's hear uh, your speech. You're going to address the student body and talk back to Joe. Let's hear it. I don't know if I would uh, talk back to Joe per se, but I think what I would say is that uh, in this university, we believe that all the students uh, belong here. All the students have a right to education. We don't believe that students are any better or worse than other students. We know some people believe that. Uh, we believe these people are wrong. We believe they're speaking from ignorance. And at this school, we will continue to have an affirmative action plan to uh, include those students who have been excluded. We'll continue to have a curriculum that reflect the diverse student body and the diversity of this country. Um, and in the classroom and in the dorms and in people's private lives, we protect their right to be safe from invidious uh, um, directed speech. But in the public forum, we will protect people's right to express themselves. I got the picture, Chancellor Powell, says Jesse. I'm not going to get anywhere with you. I'm going to go to Mr. Safer. You're going to give speeches. I'm going to go to Mr. Safer because he happens to be the chairman of the board of trustees that oversees <laughs> Chancellor Powell and may have some influence with him. And Mr. Safer, Jesse leads the students who come to you and say, Joe is hurting us. You would stop Joe if he was punching us physically in the nose every time we black students and gay students walked in the student union. These words are the same as a punch in the nose. They hurt us in the same way as a punch in the nose. They make us feel that we don't belong here. You've got to enact a policy, and we propose a policy for you to enact. Students will be disciplined for denigrating 
other people on the basis of their race, gender, or sexual orientation. Will you vote for the policy? Uh, I don't particularly like the language of the policy. I think what I would do is <clears throat> take a very hard look at what Mr. Buck has been saying. Um, I'm you, not going to get anywhere with you either. No, uh, well, you <laughs> might get somewhere with me, but if Mr. Buck is, is doing something which I regard, because I'm the boss, right? You're the boss. I don't have to report to anybody. That's right. Um, <laughs> if, if Mr. Uh, Mr. Buck is, is saying things that I interpret as incitement to violence, and from all the little you've told me, what he you, clearly has. What you interpret as incitement yes. to violence. He gets up and he says, faggots should die of AIDS. Niggers are biologically inferior. He uses those words, Mr. Safer. He does but not he, use nice words. He's not talking to, quote, faggots and, quote, niggers. He's talking to, presumably, other white students, uh, of which there are enough, he feels, uh, that something might come of, of these inflammatory speeches. You mean you're not going to discipline them until somebody actually comes after me and people like me and Probably. beats us up? Probably. You're going to wait until then? I'm afraid so. Uh, to that extent, uh, uh, I agree with my employee here. He's a good mom. No, I will do nothing until I am convinced, and it may be too late, may, there may be some loss of life, until uh, I'm convinced that, that what he is doing is inciting to violence. Why do you have to wait for violence? Aren't there other harms, harms to the mind? Brown versus Board of Education struck down school segregation because it injured the hearts and minds of the black school children excluded from the white schools. He's hurting my heart and mind. Why are you going to wait till he hurts my body? Because no one's de defined well enough for me uh, what hurting a, a mind and hurting a heart is. Uh, we're in the business of public education in this institution, and that's my first consideration. And if uh, among my other considerations is the security and the safety of the faculty and the, and the students. You know, if I feel that that is threatened, I will do something about it. Don't you care? I also feel, by the way, that uh, by the time people get to uh, City College, uh, that they have been well enough educated to deal with uh, creeps like Mr. Buck, uh, deal with them intellectually, uh, one would hope. And uh, by the same token, if I felt uh, and I presume my colleague would feel the same way, that if Mr. Buck's life was, in threat, was threatened because of these extraordinary things he is saying, uh, we would have to protect him. Ms. Krug, help me out. You're on the Board of Trustees. I can't get anywhere with Chancellor Powell. I can't get anywhere with Chairman Safer. Uh, I'm going to leave school if I have to walk past that racist, homophobic garbage every day to go eat my lunch. It makes me sick, and I'm going to leave school. Don't you care about me? Yeah, I really do care about you, but I don't feel that we can stop the speech. I mean, he is speaking under the First Amendment, and unfortunately, the First Amendment, or fortunately from my perspective, the Fourth First Amendment has no qualifiers. It doesn't say that speech has to be uh, acceptable or equal or truthful even. It just says you have the right to speak. Uh, that right ends when um, 
the action that you take affects me. But this at this affects point, me. This yeah, affects this affects me. me. And I, I think that if I were a woman, uh, if he were attacking women, he I attacks women too. Well, but, but I haven't <laughs> heard that yet. Uh, the truth is that um, at this point, he hasn't reached his tentacles out far enough to affect the women on this campus. And uh, when he does, we may take some action. And that action may be to set up a boycott of what he's doing. In other words, just stand there and say, um, we don't think you should hear him, so try to convince people to leave him alone. You're telling me that I've got to bear the burden of educating the world about why Joe Buck is wrong. Why should I have to take time to educate the world? Why won't you protect my right to equal treatment here? Because I think that's a spurious argument. Why? I, I think it's that not spurious. This is my life. You got here on the basis of your qualifications. Uh, you, are an, you are qualified to be here. And it really doesn't matter what somebody says. Aren't some arguments beyond the pale? Let me be specific, Mr. Carter. You're the editor of the student newspaper at Utopia City College. And Joe, who really is catching on with quite a few of the white male students on campus, uh, has come to you with an ad that he'd like to run. The ad that he'd like to run for payment at your usual rate says in big block letters, the Holocaust never happened. It's a Jewish conspiracy to say that crematoriums were ovens for genocide. And it's part of the Jewish conspiracy that runs the country. The Holocaust never happened. <coughs> you going to run the ad? This is the student newspaper, you say? Student newspaper. No. Why not? Well, as the editor of the student newspaper, I like to think that our standards are higher than that. I like to think, as the editor of the student newspaper, that uh, we're going to run articles or even ads on serious issues of public moment dealing with live and important controversies. This is an important controversy. I, I this is an as, issue as of importance. my editorial is judgment history. is that this is not a live and important controversy. If he, if, if Joe Buck uh, were to uh, organize a canvas debate on the issue and convince us that these were serious scholars who were involved in it, I suppose we might cover it as a news story and become convinced that it's a that it's a controversy. But the fact that someone runs an ad making an assertion of fact doesn't by itself create a controversy over the truth of that assertion. But uh, uh, you don't agree with Joe. Is that why you're not going to run the ad? I'll run a lot of things for things I don't agree with. So why won't you run this one? Well, the reason I, the reason I just gave you this, this is this is not, it seems to me, uh, material that deals with, if you want to treat it as a political advertisement, some live and important controversy that we need to be uh, You ran uh, ads last with. week for the Young Democrats for Clinton. You ran we ads did? last week for the... <laughs> you ran ads last week for Young Republicans for Buchanan. You ran ads last week for the Alpha Omega frat party, but you're not going to run the Holocaust never happened. What's the distinction? Well, 
Perhaps we needed the money last week and we don't need the money now because we ran all those other good ads. <laughs> but, but, short of, but, but short of that. Joe will pay premium. You know, I, perhaps it, it, it may just be that we don't want his money. Why don't you want his money? It, it, it may be because he is a, uh, a sick and, and deranged character whose, uh, whose views are uh, sufficiently on the margin that uh, we don't think we're going to accept uh, money from him. But I just heard a whole lot of rhetoric from Mr. Powell and Mr. Safer about how even sick and deranged views have a right to free expression. Absolutely, I agree. And, and if he wants to speak on campus, let him speak. But not in your newspaper. Right. Ms. Krug, you're the advisor to the student newspaper from the Board of Trustees. You just said the First Amendment doesn't have an exception for sick and deranged individuals. Aren't you going to try to talk Mr. Carter out of it? Uh, probably not. Why or not? talk him into it. Talk him out of, uh, out of in, not publishing. Into running. Okay. Yeah. No, I won't. Um, because there is such a thing as editorial um, discretion. Uh, Discretion, thank you, yes. Yeah. And uh, you either give him that discretion or you don't. And uh, it seems to me that he is exercising his discretion, uh, his judgment, and uh, unless it was an egregious example of uh, censorship, which I don't think this is, then I would let him uh, run or not run the ad. Mr. Bradley, it's, it's late at night down at the Washington Post and, and you get a call from Mr. Carter. Mr. Carter has admired you, wants to follow in your footsteps someday after he grows up from being a student <laughs> editor to being a real editor. Gets you a call and he says, tell me I'm doing the right thing. I mean, I know that the First Amendment stops the government from censoring this guy, and I agree with Chancellor Powell, who didn't throw him out of school. But I don't have to run his ad, do I? No. Mr. Bradley, why not? Because he's a pissant, this fellow, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, editors uh, are not uh, put on this earth to uh, to shovel copy into a paper un with uh, unjudged. So I get it. When we shut Joe up, no, we haven't shut him up. If we, if we shut go Joe up and we're Chancellor Powell, we're violating the First Amendment. But if we shut he Joe up shut and we're Ben either. Bradley. We're not violating the First Amendment. Explain that. Why aren't you a censor when you deny him his right to run his ad? Well, what, I, I mean, he has, I know of no such right. He has no right to run an ad in the newspaper? There is no God-given right to run an advertisement in a privately, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, it's, it's constantly being exercised. There's no right to run an ad in a newspaper. The newspaper has a right to run it if it wants, right? But there's no right to run an ad in the newspaper. Yeah. And that applies to TV? Oh, I don't know about television. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly won't come up on television, I tell you. <laughs> Mr. Safer, is there a right to run an ad on TV? No. Absolutely. The, <clears throat> the first thing you have to, have to have if you want your ad run is the money. And the second thing is... Joe's got money. It, the second thing you have to have is uh, a message that, uh, frankly, as the pre now president of the network, that does not offend me. <laughs> and and, and I'll, go, I'll go a little further than that. Uh, that we do have, I have and Mr. Bradley has, some sense of common decency. 
Now, it may be a pretty thin sense, given some of the ads we do run. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some vestigial remains of it. And, and it. and we are not obliged by any law to uh, run anything. You know, I'm a little confused. A minute ago, you told me the government has to be neutral. The government can't pick and choose. The government can't silence people because it doesn't like what they say. But a newspaper or a TV station, which, let's face it, are the best ways for people to get their message across, can silence anybody they want and call it editorial discretion or good taste. Well, they'll, or they'll find a goofy pieces. radio station to run his ads. They'll find a radio station to run their ads. Way. Is that the idea, that he'll find some radio station to run his ads? They'll find some talk show host something somewhere, yeah. I see. So now, what if it's not as good as being on your show, from his point of view? He'll reach 10,000 people, but he wants to meet, reach 3 million. He doesn't have a right to be on television? No. Even if he pays for it? No. Professor Sullivan, I'd like to just make one comment. To uh, in, my, in my comments earlier, I don't want to suggest, and nor do I suggest, nor do I believe that the government has to be neutral in these matters. All right. What, when can it depart from being neutral? Well, there are a number of, uh, first of all, I think when you talked about equal right to education, I don't think that it's just a question of, I think the Constitution embodies certain values. And I think equality is one of the values. I think free speech is one of the values. You rejected equality before. Jesse came to you and said, you're denying me equality by letting Joe put me down for who I am. So where's equality? Well, th that's why one reason I suggested that if the professor in a classroom was doing this, that it, would, it may very well violate the concept of equality. But for another student to uh, speak out, or for someone in the streets to speak out in a public forum, I think in that instance, um, the government does not have a right to censor, but I do not think the government, therefore, should be neutral about the concept of equality, nor do I think the government is. All right. Well, I thought you told us before that you would only interfere if there was violence. That's a neutral reason for no, stopping no. speech. Harassment, the flyers under the dorm room door, which are targeting specific individuals. Now you say you'd use equality in the classroom to stop the academic freedom of the teacher? Two things. I think the most effective uh, pulpit for speaking about values in this country, is, as we've all <coughs> seen over the last two decades, is uh, from the White House. I think uh, now if, if I could be elevated from a mere chancellor to president, uh, <laughs> I would very effectively uh, speak out against racial hatred. I would very effectively uh, make it clear that this is not the government policy. And at a point that someone can demonstrate that certain actions constitute not just offensiveness, but discrimination that violates uh, the concept of the 14th Amendment or civil rights, uh, I might very well take some action. Okay, Mr. Powell, Joe's been speaking on a goofy radio station. Uh, he's been speaking outside the student union. And you know what's happening? The numbers of his followers are growing. The Aryan Supremacy Society that he founded is now the single largest student group on campus. Aren't you going to intervene now? Probably not, because the injury that you're talking about is a secondary injury. What you're saying is that Joe speaks out and he convinces someone, and when he convinces someone, they may do certain injury. What I'm talking about is a more immediate injury. When Joe does something by his speech itself, 
that constitutes an injury. To give you a specific example, if in the workplace, Joe was to use those words, was to um, make comments toward women that, were, that could be considered sexual harassment, that's an injury, not because women are convinced that he's right, not because he convinced other white men that he's right. <coughs> His speech itself constitutes an injury and is, is causing demonstration. I don't get it. Why is speaking to a woman in a workplace an injury to her, but speaking to the students going into the student union is not an injury to us? Explain that to Jesse. Well, uh, first of all, I would ask uh, Jesse to probably in, uh, enroll in a first year uh, con law class. The, the, one of the differences is captive audience, the fact that in the workplace, a person is not free to leave. If someone doesn't want to hear the message, they cannot leave, they're stuck. Whereas in the student union, if, some, if you know some creep is speaking uh, on a soapbox or on campus and I don't want to hear it, I just don't go. But I have to go to work, I have to be there. There's no way to avoid this speech. And I think that's a very important distinction. Okay, so you're not gonna let Joe speak in a dorm? You're not gonna let Joe speak in a classroom? because those have captive audiences in them, but you're gonna let Joe speak out in the public square no matter how much pollution he causes to the environment for the other students. That's how committed you are to freedom of speech. That's right. All right, well, I'm gonna fast forward now. Joe and Jesse both graduate, top students. Jesse hung in, maybe you were right. And when they get out, it turns out both of them have decided to be writers, or to try to be writers. Joe and Jesse each apply to the National Endowment for the Arts, of which Arthur Miller is now the chairman. And let me tell you about the projects that Joe and Jesse have submitted. Now I gotta tell you that the short story peer panel that reviewed these projects gave them a tie score. It said these are the two best projects that have been submitted in the entire nation for a short story collection to be worked on this year. These two men are tied in terms of their brilliance, their mastery of narrative, their uh, uh, to control of language. They're tied, so the decision is in your hands. And you can only give it to one of them. Funds have been rolled back a little, and you can only give it to one. <laughs> now here's Joe's project. It's a short story collection called White Heat. <laughs> Joe's short story collection features a series of characters who are well, rather like himself. White men angry about what they think are the unfair handouts that are being gotten by minorities and women uh, at their expense. In fact, the stories are liberally laced with words about black people like nigger and jigaboo. There are stories, in fact, in which white cops on the beat are portrayed as saying, Let's go out and do a little monkey slapping out in the jungle as a term for what it feels like to uh, uh, take black people into custody in their neighborhoods. And in fact, White Heat, all the, all the characters in the stories are really 
just like him. But Jesse's stories turn out to be pretty autobiographical, too. Jesse's book, called Black Fire, <laughs> is a highly graphic collection of stories. What he proposes to write is a highly graphic collection of stories about homosexual sex between black men. And in fact, just as Joe's book is laced with words that make people uncomfortable like nigger, Joe's book is, I, I'm sorry, Jesse's book is laced with other kinds of words that make people uncomfortable. <coughs> Fucking is one of the most prominent words in Jesse's book. And the scenes are between men. He talks a lot about anal sex between men. Now, your peer panel said that Joe's book, White Heat, and Jesse's book, Black Fire, are the two best short story proposals in the nation for next year. <laughs> Mr. Miller, you have unreviewable discretion. It's up to you. You can play God here. You can give the NEA grant to Joe, or you can give the NEA grant to Jesse. Who do you give it to? Well, I would just wouldn't come to work. <laughs> uh, and neither, neither of them sounds very good. But uh, I think in the case, if I can gather what you mean by this, uh, one is a uh, breach of certain sexual mores held by a large number of people in this country, as well as other countries. And the other, it sounds like, is a racial attack. Well, these are not equal uh, problems. Uh, in general, uh, I would be uh, opposed to giving uh, not just government money, but uh, anybody's money, uh, to a racial attack. Unless I could uh, accompany that book uh, with a preface or another book attached <coughs> to it in which the facts of race are set out. Uh, now, I'm trying to de-abstract this whole uh, discussion at this moment. That is, I think in the abstract, uh, I am opposed to any kind of censorship whatsoever, because it can be used, obviously, by anybody for bad purposes. But that isn't enough, in my opinion. I think that there is a a uh, concurrent obligation upon anybody who says what I've just said uh, to set forth corrective uh, demonstrable facts. For example, uh, I don't want to make a, a whole other argument here, but if somebody presents, we were talking about advertisements and papers a moment ago, if somebody comes to a student newspaper and wants to put an ad in the paper saying that Dwight Eisenhower 
was president between 1800 and 1808 and uh, fathered 11 illegitimate children in 1836. Uh, and that this man thoroughly believes this, the man who presents the ad. Uh, and I believe in the freedom, his freedom to put any ad in the newspaper he likes to put in there. I would put that ad in the paper and make an idiot of him by saying uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president between 1950, whatever, and uh, that these are the facts. Because you think it's harmless. It, it is harmless. It's never harmless. I don't think anything is, is really harmless. Uh, no, I don't think it's harmless. It's a relative question. Uh, you can be made less harmful uh, by educative means. And indeed, I just, uh, I'm branching out a little bit here, but I would Mr. think. Mr. Miller, I'd say you're trying not to make the decision here. <laughs> well, no, I would make, definitely, I would not make a decision for the black heat thing if that indeed is if I gather from your description, it was really, uh, or the white heat rather, it was really a, an attack on black people. Mr. Miller, this is not an attack on black people. This is a work of art, right? Works of art are subject to a lot of different interpretations. This is not a manifesto saying go kill black people. This is a book of short stories. Well then, uh, if it's hard to imagine two sets of short stories that equal. <laughs> anyway, but uh, if my choice is between one you read them. that you that take them home against your better judgment, you sit down and you read them, and you think the peer panel was right. They're both very good at their craft. If I'm just assessing who is a good writer here, I can't choose between them. Well, that's possible. Okay, so which, how are you gonna pick? Are you gonna let your politics drive the decision and say, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with this racist stuff, so even though he's just a good, as good a writer, I'm not gonna give it to him? No, I don't think so. I don't think I would do that. I would have to make a literary judgment. And it, it's hard to imagine two pieces of literature which are that equal, uh, quite frankly. So you'd read them over and over and over again until an inspiration came to you about which one was better. Well, I know of, of good literature that is basically, for example, racist and anti-Semitic and should never have been prevented from being published. And I would certainly Merchant vote for the, uh, a writer named Celine, who was a French novelist of the first uh, level of achievement. However, there's a lot of junk that's anti-Semitic and races that I wouldn't uh, certainly want, uh, didn't deserve publication. Mr. Miller, you're a great man of letters, uh, but you sound like you're kind of new in this town, Washington, D.C. Uh, I'd like you to call your good friend Ben Bradley for a little political advice on how to make this decision, okay? You read them, you're going crazy because they seem both very good. Both these guys are equally talented. Call your friend Ben Bradley and ask him what you should do. Well, the first thing I'd like to know is how the hell that jury got uh, chosen. <laughs> <laughs> the 
second thing is, you know, th there is a right that doesn't get expressed here, which is the right not to commit suicide, not to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. Uh, and the NEA is going to shoot itself in, its, in the foot if it takes Joe or if it takes Jesse? Well, it, it, I mean, I know the rules here are that we can't quibble with the uh, hypothetical. Got, you can only take one. Or none. Or none. Is that your vote? You're presiding well, over a dwindling pot for the nation's struggling artists, and you're going to advise him to sit there and say, this year we're giving no well, award. Well, by this what? time, it's, if, it's, if it's, uh, it's on page one of all the papers, and, the, uh, and everybody's uh, got their, uh, themselves in an uproar about it, I don't know how. You, you probably shouldn't duck it. But uh, I mean, you know so you're going. He's, he should give it to one. No, I think I'd, I'd say. Why the hell did you come to work? I would say, uh, <laughs> I would like to duck the case. I really would like to duck the case, and I'd like to take the heat off of him uh, for doing it. He begs you, he Mr. Begs Bradley. Me. He says, I can't duck the case. I'm going to have, they're, they're well, going to have my head. Own damn mind, <laughs> they're going to have my head. The artist my, are my constituents. Well, they're going to have his head anyway. Well, my... who's going to have his head? Which is going to be worse? Let, tell it, spin it out. He gives the book to Joe. What's going to happen? In, Political. Well, the Congress will get a hold of it, and Jesse Helms will get a hold of it, and Pat Buchanan will run those charming ads, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the Congress, uh, it, uh, everybody's up for election this year, therefore uh, there will be a reluctance to, uh, to fight like hell for the NEA uh, uh, budget, and uh, you have just described a guy walking into a, uh, a, a gun store and saying, you've got to buy one. And then you know what to do with it. Has he helped you, Mr. Miller? <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen, by the way, if he gives the grant to the black gay book? I don't see much difference in it. Jesse I mean, Helms and Pat Buchanan are going to run the same ads either way. The controversy is there uh, automatically. But, Mr. Miller, you thought that these books were really quite different. Jesse Helms and Pat Buchanan might see them both as offensive, but you said one is racially subordinating, the other is just morally indecent in the eyes of the majority. Well, I would have to, we can take it a step further. Uh, I would absolutely defend my right and uh, my, indeed my obligation to select uh, the second one uh, because it is not an attack upon a racial group. It is an offense against uh, certain moral codes that prevail. Now that's a different, I think, a different uh, level of a the Christian, The Christian fundamentalist organizations come to you and say, Jesse is attacking us just the way black people think Joe is attacking them. What are you going to tell the Christian fundamentalists when you say it's just moral offense? That's just what I'm going to have to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from a Christian fundamentalist group, and I come to you and I say, this is attack literature against Christians and family values. You say you're not giving the award to Joe, you're giving the award to Jesse, and you give a press conference and you state your reasons are, Jesse just offends moral values. Joe, in contrast, puts down an entire race of people. So I'm going to go with Jesse. And then the Christians come forward and say, 
Jesse's putting down our entire moral tradition. Why don't you care about us? Well, it would undoubtedly lead to my not coming to work the next day. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> and not by my will either. Yeah, uh, but I think that would have to be the choice. I don't see any way around it. Uh, if you're giving us no room on that. Yeah. Uh, Which one do you pick? Oh, I think his explanation is quite good. Original, and uh, I didn't see it when he first. Uh... So you, you tell him he's okay. He can go with Jesse's No, Jesse I don't book. tell him that. You tell him you can expect the Christians to show up on your door the next no, morning. I mean, but I go think he's Jesse. doing irreparable. I mean, not he, but I think irreparable harm to the National Endowment for the Arts is being done by this decision. Either I see. way. I see. So you want him to be repairable, maybe. I see. You want him to keep the NEA alive by rejecting controversial art. You want him to go for something no, bland no, and milk yeah. toast. Is that it? Well, uh, that's not attractively put, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know. No, look, if I, I mean, I've been there. If, if you are there for as long as I have been there, you've got a certain amount of really good fights in you. You've got a certain amount of fights where you can really change society. And it, it, it really breaks my heart to uh, ask me to fight for something that I don't believe in, except in, in the, the details of which I do not believe, the principle I do. So you say reject both of them and keep the NEA I would alive. Say, I would say, I mean, if you're not giving me any room at all, that I can't, uh, I can't. Uh, you can't uh, resurrect Flaubert, okay? You're stuck with Joe and Jesse. Okay, but I and I can't get both of them uh, uh, scholarships for the Guggenheims to go somewhere, and uh, I can't. Uh, you can't. You don't let me out. Nope. You got to creative as I am. You don't let me out. You got to help him give the grant to one or none. Which will it be? Well, I mean, uh, I'm holding my nose and getting out of town. I, I would go with him. Go with him. Give it yeah. to Jesse. Uh, I tell you, can Jeff, I add one do. thing? Uh, just to make it a, a little more of a practical uh, problem, uh, I went to Washington on the NEA business for the Authors League, and I talked, uh, naturally, they sent me to all the right-wing Republicans <laughs> in the Senate, and I thought I wouldn't ever lived to see the end of that day. But <laughs> uh, I went in there and I talked to this Senator Wallop and Senator, the guy from Indiana and another man from Pennsylvania and so forth and so on. And to a man, what they said was, look, we've got to give them something. Them being the right wing, say, and I would say, well, how do you feel about it, though? And they'd sort of wriggle a little bit, and they really weren't <laughs> offended at all, see? They were all old burlesque fellas. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I uh, took out a book that I'd written uh, 15 years ago about Russia. And in the book, there was a quotation from the head of the Russian Writers' Union this was by, by a decade and a half, in which she said to me, and I quoted in the book, we are not about to subsidize with workers' money pornographic, homosexual, 
and other deviant literature and expect our working class to pay for this. And one of the senators headed Mimeograph, uh, copied. Uh, and when I did that, uh, Senator Lugar, he sort of blushed a little bit and he said, well, we've got to give them something though. You see, it was a purely, no, there was nobody offended by anything. It was purely a card game. You put down that card and I'm going to put down this card. So Mr. Miller, it sounds like you put down the wrong card. And you picked the pornographic homoerotic say, book. Let me say that the, my conclusion would be, I would try to bullet through. In other words, I would say, yes, it's offensive to even me, but I think I'd have to base it on its value as art. If it didn't have that, then I don't think I could give them uh, this money. If it was merely promising, let's say, and it didn't achieve anything much, uh, then I would say, well, let's pass this one because uh, this guy may be a clinker. Maybe the next time around he'll write a stinky book. But if this is a good book and it's offensive that way, then I've got to sink or swim with it, seems to me. So and I think that ultimately you'd win with the people. Now, with this administration, of course, you lose before you open your mouth. Right. Now, uh, Mr. Miller's no longer working at the NEA. Uh, his, uh, his successor, uh, Mr. Safer, has to bear the consequences of Mr. Miller's decision to give a grant to Jesse's book. Because sure enough, black fire was all over the news media, all over the newspaper ads and the television ads. The NEA through the president is giving money to homoerotic pornographic smut, spitting in the eye of Christian family values taxpayers, uh, and there sh we shouldn't have to stand for it. Okay, now you're the successor, and uh, here's what's happened. The Congress has now passed a law that says you have to take general standards of decency into account when you approve a book. And uh, uh, Jesse's sequel to Blackfire comes up before you the next year. And Jesse figures he's got a pretty good shot because last year he got the grant. And uh, he comes out on the top of the pile. Peer panel says, no contest this year. Jesse's book, which is again about black gay men having sex <coughs> in graphic terms, comes before you. And now you've got this general standards of decency language. You're going to give him the grant? Well, first of all, we made him such a bestseller under Mr. Miller's uh, tenure that he doesn't need the money. I see. <laughs> Deny him the, uh, the means test. He's no longer a struggling artist. No, uh, I, I'm sorry. Um, can you fix the joke? You, you, you're saying that to be brief about it, that I'm in exactly the same fix. You're in the same fix with one twist. Now you're told you have to take general standards of decency into account. Who tells me this? The Congress. They gave you your budget. They can take it away. Um, Does this book conform Mr. Mr. with Mr. Miller looked so good uh, uh, as a martyr last year uh, that I think I'll take my chances and in so doing, in giving the award would remind the Congress that uh, they have taken up the mantle uh, of the late Ayatollah Khomeini in 
one form or another with this stupid law. And what makes it purely stupid is that no one really cares about art anyway. Congressman, you know that. You don't care about it. Uh, I don't really care much about it either, but I'm a, I'm a good bureaucrat and a good Republican or whatever. And I, I'm doing my job, and we've got to keep those lefties out there happy and looking as if we're doing something for the So you're going to give arts. Jesse the grant. Yeah. You're going to give Jesse the grant. Now, uh, is that in keeping with general standards of decency? Professor well, Carter? Uh, you go to Professor Carter for some legal advice, all right? Uh, I got this language, general standards of decency. Can I get away with giving Jesse the grant, even though I'm bound by this language? Well, there's, there's a problem here. You're asking me to go to a lawyer for advice on decency? <laughs> <laughs> that was my line. <laughs> got you there. Four to three, I'll let that pass. <laughs> uh, give him some advice, Mr. Carter. You're a constitutional expert. He's saying, can I ignore this general standards of decency? I don't think so. Um, there, there's a legal problem, there's a political problem. The legal problem is that money can't be taken from the Treasury under the Constitution except in accordance with a congressional statute. The congressional statute has a limitation on it that you don't much like it, that may indeed be unconstitutional, you might want to argue. But if it's unconstitutional, that doesn't give you the money. That just, I, it's not clear that you can sever it from the statute. Uh, so it, I, my advice to you as a lawyer would be, I'm not sure that you can uh, give Jesse the grant if you think well, that Jesse runs afoul of the language. However, but what, however, I have a question. However, so my, my point is, that if, if I, I, I'm not sure you can give it to Jesse as a protest. But as you're a lawyer, I would say to you that if you want to argue that in fact uh, Jesse's book does not offend common standards of decency, I would certainly be prepared to try to craft a legal argument to, uh, uh, to that effect. Let's no, hear I'm you do it. Let's say how you're going to defend him in court. But he wants to be a martyr, though. I'm not sure he wants to, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure he wants the, uh, the argument. No, but I also think, I'm, I want to know from you, uh, can we make or change some law here? No. That law is in place. That law was the, the, the best the civil libertarians could do. It's the mildest law that you could pass and say you were doing something to clean up smut in Washington. What I would argue is this. If, if you want to know what the common standards of decency are. What are they? Well, I'm gonna, if you want to know what the common standards of decency are, it seems to me all you have to do is look at what's on the bestseller list. Look at the books that sell. And it turns out the books that sell uh, probably are not any significantly more offensive uh, than the book that we're thinking of, of funding. The common decency of the book buying public uh, seems to be that uh, it's a fairly low uh, standard. I don't think that should be very hard for us to. Uh, no, I, I mean this quite sincerely. It would be hard for us to. Just uh, not hard. Uh, but, uh, but, there's a, but there's still a political problem. But, I, Mr. Carter, there's not a single best selling book on the New York Times list about black, gay male sex. There's a lot of sex on the New York Times bestseller list, but none of it is sex between black, gay men. Aren't they beyond the pale of general standards of decency? 
however they may exist in the New York oh, Times? Gee, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, we we publish. We have best-selling books about people chopping up uh, other people's bodies. You know, men chopping up women and so on. So, what do they call it? Splatter books. These. This is disgusting stuff, but it sells very well. And it's hard for me to imagine, although I may be wrong, that our common standards of decency as a nation are more offended by descriptions, however graphic, of sex between consenting adults than they are of uh, murder and mayhem disguised, if you will, under some thin sexual uh, uh, veneer. So I, I think we can make an argument here. I think we can make well, an argument here. Some people in Washington get more offended by the gay sex I'm thinking the outside sets, the Beltway. Worried? I'm outside the. Outside I, I don't know inside the Beltway what offends people in Washington. A lot Washington. of people outside of Beltway get offended too. In fact, more outside than in. A, lo a lot of people do. They're going to show up on his doorstep, Mr. Powell. Uh, is the ACLU going to say that that general standards of decency clause that Congress slapped onto the NEA is censorship? Certainly, and not only is it censorship, but I would go further and say that. Um, Could I ask you why? Because Mr. Carter just said. You can get around it real easy. Just well, say think, everything's decent these days. Well, I think that's a different uh, strategy. I mean, the, the strategy of trying to uh, play with the deck of cards that you are dealt. Uh, but if we go back to the Constitution, and in fact, I would start probably with uh, Professor Sullivan's article on unconstitutional conditions and say that you can't put those conditions on free speech. But why not? We talked before about a newspaper, and we said, a newspaper has editorial discretion. It doesn't have to run Joe's ad. Why the doesn't the government have editorial discretion? The government is not the newspaper. And, for what's and, the, what's and furthermore, the, the government doesn't have free speech rights. But even more importantly, I think, is that as a practical matter, regardless to what um, his client decides to do, I think in the long run it would be a real mistake to try to pander to Jesse Helms and satisfy him. I don't think he's going to stop. Uh, and I think we have to draw the line somewhere, and this is as good a place as any. So you're ready to sue. But I'm a little confused now. Could you just explain what you said a minute ago? You said the government is not a newspaper. Now, a little while ago, we had old Joe trying to run an ad saying the Holocaust didn't happen. And neither Mr. Carter, nor Ms. Krug, nor Mr. Bradley were going to run that ad in their newspaper. Mr. Safer wasn't going to run it on his television spot because it turned their stomach. They thought it was. Uh, something that was beyond the pale. It was indecent, to use Mr. Safer's words. Mr. Safer was going to say he didn't have to run indecent ads. Right. And you're telling the United States taxpayer that he has to fund indecent art. No. Why? No. What I'm saying is that if the government wants to get out of the business of funding art, it can. But if it funds art, it can't fund art in such a way as to then pick what it likes and what it dislikes. For example, the government does not have to fund education in any state, there's no requirement, at least as a federal matter, that the government has to fund education. But once it decides to fund education, it can't say, you can come to school here, but first you have to have sex with the principal. <laughs> That's not permissible. So just because the government can choose not to do something, it doesn't mean once it do something, it can put any condition it considers appropriate okay, on that Okay, but what about decency? If decency is good enough for editors, why well, isn't decency good enough for Washington? There are a couple of reasons. First of all, put the Constitution aside. I mean, I do think it's clearly in violation of the Constitution, and it can't be really <coughs> defined. But secondly, it seems to me that decency is just a standard that cannot be defined. I mean, the, the, the idea <coughs> that if you don't like a book, don't read it. In fact, most people don't like books because most people don't read anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> But Mr. Powell, 
you're making the taxpayer pay for this. It's one thing if the taxpayer doesn't have to buy the book, but here the taxpayer does have to buy the book, the, the at least to the tune of the 68 cents a year. The taxpayers have to pay a lot of things they don't like. Uh, for example, I wasn't happy that my measly taxes was funding the Vietnam War. Uh, frankly, I wasn't, that's part of the government. But once the government decides to fund something, it has to fund it in a way that doesn't pick one point of view over another point of view. Uh, it can't be about the business of censorship, and that's what this is. Um, Professor Carter? Well, I, my heart is with Mr. Powell, but I'm not sure that my, uh, that, that my uh, uh, legal uh, mind is with him. I, I'm not sure that this is unconstitutional. Part of, the reason I, part of the reason I want to press Mr. Safer to find a way to live with it is I'm not convinced it's facially unconstitutional. In fact, we, do, we place a lot of content restrictions. If you say to the NEA, you have to fund art, but you can only fund what you think is the best art, that is clearly a content-based restriction. If it's lousy, you can't give it any money. It seems that you're call, it's, not, it's not only content-based, but you're calling for all sorts of judgment and, and, uh, and discretion in the giving of government money. Uh, it, it's, it's not clear at all to me why that's different from why saying it has to be good to get funding is qualitatively different from saying it has to be decent uh, to, get, to, uh, uh, to get funding. It seems like they both raise exactly the same problem. It's also the case that I mean, after Rust versus Sullivan last year, uh, which, which after all is the law of the land, I think it's very hard to say that the government can't place um, what look like very speech controlling conditions on the receipt of government funds. Rust versus Sullivan held that the federal government could give Planned Parenthood money for family planning advice, but if they took it, they couldn't tell any women about abortion. Right. And now, I, as and a legal scholar, I, I would say that's a lousy decision, but that is, but that's currently the law of the land. But this is a little different, isn't it, Mr. Powell? Well, I think it's different in a, a number of ways, and in fact, in that very opinion that you cited, the uh, court made a caveat, and the caveat was, in the area where Congress is funding something that is speech or that's close to uh, the exchange, artistic ideas um, that Rusty Solomon is not controlling. So the court itself accepted, we argue, um, the NEA from the Rusty Sullivan decision. But I think it's also dangerous, the, the argument you're making, and that is whatever uh, the nine people who happen to be sitting on the court happen to say uh, it's the Constitution should end the discussion. I think that's just the beginning of the discussion. Uh, and I don't think we should close our eyes to uh, who's on the court, uh, what judgments they're reflecting, and we should not confuse them with the Constitution. Well, general standards of decency, <laughs> general standards of decency survives the constitutional challenge, but Mr. Safer takes Mr. Carter's advice and publishes Jesse's second collection anyway, Black Fire Two. Uh, and in fact, Blackfire 2 becomes a runaway bestseller, confirming Mr. Carter's point about what's on the bestseller list. <laughs> in fact, it's also critically acclaimed. It's given a, a writing award by a National Association of Writers. And as part of the National Association of Writers in the schools program, they give free copies of Blackfire 2 oh to all the high schools <laughs> in the inner city. Uh, and uh, you guessed it, those folks who came down and got Mr. Miller kicked out of his job for giving the first grant want that book removed from the high school library. Now, uh, 
Mr. Safer, you're the high school principal, okay? At <laughs> Utopia High. And uh, a number of Christian fundamentalist parents come to you and they say, I I'm gonna play the parents, all right? They say, the high school library in the high school where we are bound by law to send our children should not contain works that offend our deepest moral values. This is spit in our eye, this homosexual stuff. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and we shouldn't have to have our, we shouldn't have to have our children exposed to this in the high school library. We want that book removed. We pay taxes to you to have an education, not to have moral garbage placed in their hands. Talk to them. What do you say? They're in your office. Well, I would, being a principal and therefore formerly a teacher, <clears throat> I would try to educate them. Oh. That's my Go job. Ahead. Here I am. I, educate me. What have uh, you got to educate me about? I've got my education from the sacred text. I don't want to get my education from your idea of a permissible text, but try. Uh, I would try to educate them by explaining the difference between choice and, and, and uh, curriculum. Uh, that this book is not presumably on the curriculum, it's there for those <coughs> three people in the school of 2000 who actually take books from the library. Um, <coughs> I, would, I would also uh, try to explain to them that it has merit um, of a kind that they might not understand yet because I haven't educated, I haven't educated them properly, that it has merit such merit that uh, the very Congress of the United States proved this book. That's why among them out of office. <coughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. And that's why we're working to vote them out of office. But you're well, an elected official too. Oh, <laughs> oh now I'm elected. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Change your mind. No, it doesn't change my mind at this point because that's why I became a teacher, you see. You're not getting anywhere with them, Mr. Safer. They're saying, remove that book now. Why don't you call in Ms. Krug to help you out? She's been through a few book <coughs> removal battles. Ms. Krug, come in and, and help Mr. Safer with his speech I to the Christian I would kiss parents. him first. I mean, <laughs> any principal who would stand up to a group of parents like that and really try to educate them uh, means that we could call out all the big guns to support him uh, because he is doing exactly the right thing. He's talking about the difference between a controlled situation in a classroom and the fact that the library provides choice. The library's role is also to provide all of those children um, examples of literature that deal with the issues that they have to live with, that they have to deal with, and if they don't learn about them, these kinds of situations from books, uh, they darn well might learn about them out on the street or behind the school or so on. Now, none of these arguments, of course, are going to solve the concerns of the parents uh, who want the schools and the libraries and the materials published and indeed all of society to cater to their particular value system and to be a replica of what they believe is right and true and correct and honest. We're just trying to get rid of books that our students are reading. Don't talk to us about choice, Ms. Krug. 
This is the hottest book in the school library. You know that. It's being passed from hand to hand, and we cannot keep our kids from reading it. So don't talk to us about choice. The only way to keep this book away from our kids is for you to take it off the library shelf for good. I can't do that. Why not? Um, because my professional ethic precludes it. Does the First <laughs> Amendment preclude it? Yeah, but that's all part of my professional ethic. Wait, the First I understand that you want the most books you can get into the most libraries you can get them into. But this book is destroying our way of life. Why don't you Does talk the to First your children? Amendment protect that? Why don't you talk to your children? We try. Oh. But I thought your whole argument was that books are powerful. Oh, books are powerful. Are you saying that this book is harmless? No, I'm not saying this book is harmless. I you think it is extremely powerful. It is powerful, and yes. it can change their lives. Uh, it it's might be able to change their lives, but you've already had these children, uh, and you have already inculcated them with your value system. You had a crack at them for 17 years. And are you telling me that the teaching that you have done is going to be uh, dissipated because they read one book? No, because at every turn you've made them read Soul on Ice and uh, uh, countless other books. I don't want to go into our old battles that have warped their minds, but this one really goes over the edge. But I want to talk to Mr. Carter again. Uh, come back to Mr. Safer. He's the principal here. He's called you for more constitutional advice. Does the First Amendment prevent the school library from taking a book off the shelves? Is that censorship? I think at this point he'll probably enjoy more of the advice he'll get from Mr. Powell, and maybe you should, uh, <laughs> and maybe you should uh, ask him. Taking Mr. Powell's instruction that we don't need to be bound by the decisions of the Supreme Court in this area, and uh, we can say the Constitution. What we think is, I, I don't think that the uh, <coughs> that the First Amendment um, precludes um, school authorities from deciding to remove a book from the library any more than it precludes them from deciding to put a book in the library. That's just the old editorial discretion well, of the library. Well, the, 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 the problem is what, what, one has to have it one way or the other. That is, one can say that a library is going to be the repository of those materials that professional educators in their best judgment think ought to be there, in which case the professional educators can put it in or take it out. Or one can say it's going to be a repository of those materials that the community in its expression of values uh, thinks should be there, in which case the community can take it in and put it in there, take it out. Which but it's, is but it? But, well, which is it in your view? I don't, uh, it, it's less that I have a view about which way the library is, but, uh, as that I think that if, if you're going to defend the library um, on the ground that, w a, as uh, Judith Krug was saying, which I think is perfectly sensible, that, that in effect this is a place where a force, if you will, other than the parents has made a choice about the materials to be available, it seems to me that force can change its mind. Mr. Safer is the force. Should he change his mind? Should he take this book out and yield to the people? Or should he keep the book on the shelf in the name of the First Amendment? My point no, is no, that I, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that withdrawing the book from the shelf vi would violate the First Amendment. The fact, that, the fact that he has the right to keep it on the shelf doesn't mean that he violates some, some right if he takes it off. That's all. No, I didn't, well, put it on, I didn't put it on the shelf in order to maintain my belief in the First Amendment. I put it on the shelf because I thought it was a you got book it for that free. kids, well, partly <laughs> because I got it for free, but I thought 
the, I read it, oddly enough. Uh, I read the reviews uh, of the book, and the consensus by my English department was, this is a pre pretty damn good book. It's not for every kid in the school, but for enough that we want it here. Except that you Nothing to do with the First Amendment. You it. probably did that uh, because despite the fact that there was policy governing the selection of these materials, uh, the selectors in this case were probably having some difficulty because of the uh, graphic type of material that it is. My point, though, is that no principal, no superintendent, no librarian, as a matter of fact, makes the decision out of whole cloth. Do you if you're not bound by policy, you leave yourself open to be hung. All right, so you, you say never remove a book that has literary value for any reason. Oh, no, that's not what I said. What do you? I said that, that the decision is made on the basis of policy, and that policy gives you a place to stand. Now, the next step, as far as I'm I concerned. Should he remove the book or not? Absolutely not. What's the policy? The policy says that the library is going to have on its shelves the broad range of ideas and information that the children will have them, young people, excuse me, will have them available and they can select. I see. So the graphic language is not enough to take the book off the shelf. No. The word fuck is not enough to take the book off the shelf. Have you walked down the halls of the school recently? <laughs> <laughs> But Ms. Krug, there's another group of parents who are coming in to see you now. And they're not your usual enemies. It's not a group of Christian fundamentalists objecting to the language in the book and the concept of homosexuality in the book. It's a group of your usual liberal supporters. And they come into you, I'm going to make You've now taken over the library at Mr. Safer's school. You're the library head at Mr. Safer's school, and the liberals come to you and they say, we've been working for the last five years to try to get safe sex education into this school. We've tried to get condoms handed out in this school. We've tried to get people to practice safe sex. This book is undermining our efforts because nobody in this book practices safe sex. <laughs> and the kids are getting the idea from this book that they can go out and have unprotected anal intercourse and they're going to die because this book is in the library, Ms. Krug. So get that thing the hell off the shelves, please. What do you say to them? Can't tell them they're being sensitive about language. I really appreciate your coming and, and <laughs> sharing your concerns with me, but there is no way that We're I, be back. I can take that book off the shelf. We're going to be back. Well, Until what you, do. you can do is fill out this complaint form. You didn't tell the other parents that. I, was, I had to work through him with the other parents. Oh. Fill out the complaint form, and we will institute our procedure and our policy. But don't give us this bureaucratic stuff, Ms. I know. Bureaucratic crap bureaucratic. is what it's called, yes? Yeah. I mean, we want this book off the shelf because it's a ticking time bomb. This is not moral offense, okay? We use bad language too. We're not against homosexuality. We want our kids to practice safe sex. And this book is like a how-to manual of how to die. Get it off the shelves. I can't do that. Why not? You'd take a bomb off the shelves, wouldn't you, even if it was in the library and somebody hadn't filed a complaint form yet? Yeah, but... <laughs> 
Well, maybe not. <laughs> no, the pr there, you're talking about two different kinds of activities. You're talking about intellectual activity, food for the mind, and then you're talking about a bomb, which is something different. It is What's a thing. Difference. This book tells students that the greatest erotic joy in life can be achieved through unprotected anal intercourse. Okay. Okay. You are telling them how. And this is a runaway bestseller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I would never use this language with a parent. But what in the hell did you teach your kids? I mean, why do I have to protect your children? Aren't you capable of doing that yourself? Mr. Miller, you're, uh, you're, people come to you for your wisdom on these things. You're in retirement now from being chairman of the NEA. <laughs> Help us out here on this book removal. Well, Can they remove I, the books? I would have to say to them that uh, at the moment, in the United States, <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to remember the number now, and I'm probably wrong, but it's close. Uh, there are 150-some libraries which uh, prohibit uncensored copies of Romeo and Juliet on the shelves. Uh, and right now, and that as a consequence, the textbook publishers of the United States, since they have not been supported by people like myself sufficiently, have republished Romeo and Juliet in a censored version which leaves out all aspects of sexuality and that this is what these students are reading when they do read Romeo and Juliet. So I can't accede to your request in principle because I love Shakespeare. And uh, Shakespeare is part of my uh, heritage and yours if you knew it. <laughs> and therefore on that ground, on the principle of protecting an uncensored Shakespeare, I can't accede to your request. So you're not going to remove the book? I'm going to leave it on the shelf. You're going to leave it on the shelves uncensored? Yeah. Well, the death of students who read it is on your hands, isn't it, Mr. Miller? If they well, read it, they shouldn't have read it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, life is risky, and I think that's one of the less after all, Romeo and Juliet didn't end up living oh. happily ever after. <laughs> That's right, it killed them love, too. Right? Uh, now, uh, speaking of life being risky, uh, you might have wondered what happened to Joe in the meantime. Uh, Joe's been pretty successful uh, out in the marketplace. He didn't get his NEA grant, uh, but his book, White Heat, is selling well. And here's what happens. There's one chapter in White Heat that depicts a rape scene, a rape by a man, white man of a white woman who ties her to a four-poster bed and rapes her. And a lot of people are reading this scene. In fact, this scene is part of the reason for the popularity of the book, some critics think. And uh, it comes along one day that uh, woman comes into 
court. She comes to the police first, she goes to court, she wants to file charges against the publisher of Joe's book because here's what happened to her. She went out on a date, her date picked up a copy of Joe's book and literally read from it as he tied her to a bed and raped her. The, her date imitated what was in the book as if it were a how-to manual of how to rape a woman who you tie to a bed. And she said, she's not gonna just sue the guy. She is gonna sue the guy, she's gonna sue him for rape. She wants to sue the publisher of the book, White Heat, for aiding and abetting the rape. You know, now, this scene is a graphic scene. In fact, the first publisher dropped the book because the typist didn't like to type it. But another publisher did pick it up, Genteel Press. And, uh, <laughs> Genteel Press is now being sued in court by a woman who was raped because White Heat was the how-to manual for her rape. Now, the publisher comes to you, Mr. Powell, and says, We've got a First Amendment right here, don't we? We can get rid of this lawsuit, can't we? Well, I say you certainly have a First Amendment right. And then I would say, but as, as a friend of mine, Professor Carter says, we also have a bad court. Um, so we may have some problems. But if, we, if we're talking about it as a principal matter, it seems to me very easy, a very easy principal matter. As a matter of principle, that uh, the Constitution and the First Amendment should protect the publisher. It should protect the publisher. But why? I thought before you had this whole big distinction between speech that actually causes physical harm and speech that's just words on a soapbox. This speech, speech actually no, caused no. physical harm. The speech did not cause the physical harm. What you're saying is that someone read the speech, was influenced by it, and decided to act on it. That what happened is someone's mind was convinced by the speech. That kind of speech is not the speech that caused harm. When you, when you call um, a person a racial epithet, or call a woman uh, um, a sexually derogative name in the workplace, she's not convinced of your statement. She's injured by your statement. That's very different than saying, I believe that uh, women are inferior and someone, or blacks are inferior, and someone believes that, and then they decide to act on it. That, ki that second kind of speech, I believe, is protected. I see. If it, the injury happens in one step, you can regulate it. But if it takes two steps, he's got to read first and rape me second, well, then it's protected but by that's, the First that's, Amendment. That's a much more significant protection than what you acknowledge, because most people aren't going to read. But even if first people do read, or people are convinced, there's no way to deal with the problem, I think, of people taking things and twisting it, people taking things and if, if someone wants to hear something, if I want to hear from someone how, uh, what they think of Jews, what they think of blacks, what they think of Native Americans, what they think of women, and they tell me and I'm influenced by that, <coughs> then that person who told me, uh, I believe is not responsible for the injury unless they ordered, if they said, as your boss, I'm telling you to do this to blacks, to do this to women, because then the person has no chance to reflect on it and reject it or accept it. Would it be different, Mr. Powell, if Joe, instead of being an author of a book for genteel press that people read, would it have been different if he had been a skinhead rapper who got up in front of audiences and said, rape the bitch, rape the bitch, as part of a rap song? Would that 
be protected by the First well, Amendment? Or again, would that be the direct incitement to harm that you describe? I think you're getting closer. Um, um, and I think that, you know, the, the problem with language is that language is not precise. But if, if something is meant to be an order or if something is meant to, and also, also it depends on who the audience is. If, if he's talking to people who he knows are, are kids or, or if it's a, a sergeant in an army, he's telling people, you know, to do certain things. But if he's talking to people who are considered mature, considered adults, considered autonomous, then he can wash his hands of anything they do once they read the book. What if it was foreseeable to the publisher, though? What if the publisher knew? They said, you know, we've, we've heard about these cases and these graphic books about people who do what's in the book. And they anticipated this. They knew this could happen. Well, Shouldn't they have stopped it? You know, we, we do. I think words are powerful, but I, I don't think we should exaggerate the power of words. I mean, people do have minds, and people, I mean, I've read a number of things that I haven't acted on, and I'm sure all of us have, uh, and, uh, and, and some things. But one person did, and there was a risk that that one person would do this but that the publisher knew of. Shouldn't the publisher pay? No, I don't think so. The, the, the person who did that, my guess is the person was already deranged in some way and was looking for some way to, to express their derangement. Um, and it seems to me that the publisher, unless the publisher uh, in some way more actively participated, and I think just publishing a book with a scene in it is pretty passive. Judge Carter, how do you rule? <laughs> Judge Carter. Judge Carter. No. Uh, I the case is in your court. The woman is saying, I'm suing the guy. You're, you're going to let her sue the guy. And I also want to sue the publisher. Are you going to dismiss? because the publisher's First Amendment rights have been violated by the well, lawsuit? Well, I, I might, but I think it's a little bit harder case than, than uh, uh, Mr. Powell um, acknowledges. Uh, the, the, you have a causation problem. That is, uh, it's one thing to claim that the book caused the rape. It's something different to claim that the rape imitated the book. Those are not the same things, because he might have raped whether the book existed or not. So, so there's a causation problem. But if you can overcome the causation problem, which I'm not sure you can, uh, and show that the book actually caused him to do an act he would not otherwise have done, um, then I'm not sure that it's such an easy case merely because the First Amendment is there um, interposing. Uh, after all, if, uh, to, to, to take, take your example a step further, if, if uh, the rape had occurred, say, in a pool hall, and somebody had stood there in the pool hall, saying rape, rape, I suspect we would probably find that person an accessory to the rape that then occurred. Uh, so the question is, is, for me then is whether the fact that the publisher wasn't standing there saying that uh, is going to be enough to insulate the publisher from liability. I, I, I suspect I would probably end up going Mr. Powell's way, but I'm not entirely sure. And I think it's a little, uh, I, I think if you can really show causation, that's a little bit of a harder case than uh, he suggests, much as it grieves me to, uh, to say that. Mr. Bradley, as the uh, publisher at Genteel Press, what's your, uh, what do you have to say about this lawsuit against you? Preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> really, really preposterous. Why? Because, I mean, uh, if you start listing the books uh, that uh, have been uh, written, which uh, advocate violence of some form or another, never mind wars, never mind democracy, Sad, never mind, uh, it, it certainly never mind all of the movies that you've seen and all of it. If you're going into that business uh, 
and that isn't a violation of uh, free speech. I don't think I understand it. I see. If uh, we start down the slippery slope with this lawsuit, what no, could happen after Terminator 2? Well, right? I mean, it, the question does let itself be asked. Yeah. What about, what about, Camilla. what about if the rapist, uh, in a fit of uh, sanity, said uh, that in on reading the book he got the idea? Well, you That's can't exactly have an insane and insane. <laughs> and he said, I wouldn't have done it had I not read that book. How about I never, that, Judge Carter? <coughs> I can prove to I you. I never says heard the of woman. rape before I read that book. I never, the book. <laughs> the power of books. <laughs> the book was an epiphany. <laughs> it did cause the rape. How do you rule? With Mr. Bradley, wait, wait throw the suit out? You say it did cause the rape because you said so? Caused the rape in the sense that the guy never heard of rape, never heard of bondage, and never thought about doing any act like this until he read the book. You don't think that caused the rape? No. I mean, I... I you're a big believer in free will. Huh? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't see how you could prove it caused it, but if, if I don't think it did cause it. Well, what about giving her a chance to try? Are you willing well, that, to, Mr. Well, Carter? Well, the, I, I think in, 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 the, in this sense, I, I think that Mr. Bradley and I probably agree. I, I think it's unlikely she could prove causation. Uh, but if she could prove causation, then I, th because after all, books do cause people to. Uh, Act. I could name you a case of a professor who decided to teach a different course because he read a book and he was influenced by it. Believe it or not, so so books do cause do cause people to uh, to act. Um, people do get ideas from them. I would be reluctant, however, to open the floodgates to a bunch of lawsuits that are going to say that every evil that's happened has been caused by some book. E I, every evil that's happened has been caused by some idea. I think that's true, and ideas are spread through words. I think that's true also. Uh, but here you have not a kind of amorphous, uh, you know, how many people died because of Das Kapital or something like that. You have someone saying, <coughs> this person right here did this to me and was caused, and it was caused by this, uh, by the reading of, uh, of this book. I, 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 I'm going to say that I think in the end um, I would probably come out Mr. Powell and Mr. Bradley's way, but I would do so with grave reluctance because I'm not sure that the, that the suit is preposterous, and I'm not sure that the claim that words do harm, really do harm, or really cause harm, is a ridiculous claim. I think it's not a ridiculous claim. I think they, they cause harm, grievous harm, all the time. And part of the obligation, if one is going to be a first known absolutist, I think, is, is to, uh, to <coughs> freely confess that, and to say that, and that, to that, that you're anyway? making, that they're striking a balance, to say that, to say that all right, we're protecting First Amendment rights absolutely, but we're doing that knowing that we're going to cause great harm as a result. Would you suggest that we put a Surgeon General's warning on all books that, that would relieve Mr. <coughs> uh, Bradley of this onus of, of being sued, the possibility of being sued? I mean, uh, forgive me, but it really is a stupid argument. I yeah. agree with Brad. Simply because <coughs> you can prove, for example, we better get rid of the Bible, and it's because it's probably caused, it, it's full of more really great ideas for mayhem than uh, any novel ever written, um, in, including gory details. It could be construed as an instructional manage, uh, a manual uh, for uh, um, 
for dishing out law. I mean, cutting off hands. It's a very simple, easy way to achieve a certain. And in fact, people come into court very often and say they were moved to kill because of the Bible. Is that close enough to a causing? Well, as harm? I said, the, the trouble. I, I, I said I think I ultimately, with some reluctance, come out Mr. Powell's way and Mr. Bradley's way, and now Mr. Saver's way, and I assume probably Mr. Miller's way and Ms. Krug's way, <laughs> as well. But 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 I I really want to make very clear why I think I have more reluctance than other people uh, uh, on the panel uh, do. I don't think it, it's a ridiculous or preposterous claim to say that one has been harmed as the result of someone else's words or what someone else has done because of words. I think one ha if one is going to be a first moment absolutist, one has to say not words don't do or cause any damage, but rather that we would rather bear the costs of that damage than bear the costs of regulating what people can uh, say. But, the, the but, the, but you can't say they don't do any harm. Mr. Bradley? Uh, Tell the family of the rape victim why it's so important to protect the First Amendment here. Convince them. Well, I, give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> Obviously, I don't want to do that in the, in the beginning. But uh, I, I, I really have trouble. You got a concrete injured person, and you got a principal and a slippery slope. I would, I would talk about uh, other crimes that uh, have been described from the Bible to uh, and, and other, uh, other uh, not crimes necessarily, but other uh, just actions. Uh, think of all the books you've read that have uh, talked about smoking, characters in it smoking incessantly. Uh, you're not suggesting that they have a lawsuit against the publisher for death of Aunt Hannah uh, who died of lung cancer. Or that you'd have to censor all the old bogey films, yeah. for example. Yes. Yeah, I see. Uh, and I would, I would say that, uh, uh, that, that um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, to this uh, rape victim's family, buy your, your uh, hypothetical. I really wouldn't. And I don't say, if, if I had to explain it. So you disagree with Mr. Carter. Mr. Carter said, books do have effects. Ideas do well, cause they actions. Do. Of course they do. You're back, and this idea had an effect, and this book did have at least an well, influence no, on an action, it, it, and you're going to protect it anyway. But I don't think you can force a, a, a book, an idea, can force a person to do something against his will. Well, I'll tell you one thing that happened because of a book. I'll tell you one idea a book caused in people. Uh, we're going to go back to Jesse's story now. We're going to leave Joe to the wisdom of the court and genteel press. But uh, uh, Jesse's book, Black Fire, caused an idea in a group of people uh, who called themselves Revenge of God. Revenge of God is a militant organization opposed to homosexuality blaming the scourge of AIDS on gay men. And to uh, allow him to speak remains, but the, uh, I do think that if there is a violent uh, threat against him, then we lapse into some the question of public order which uh, 
I think something like that happened in the Rushdie case early on. And uh, there was no alternative but to uh, deal with it that way, that is, early on. Now, note that uh, as time went by, and the threat seems to subside somewhat, it gets cooled off a little bit. Still hot. This threat is still hot. Well, you, if it's is that hot, then I would say that uh, I would have to go with those who'd say that uh, probably uh, the, the question of public order is paramount. Cancel the reading. Yeah. Cancel the reading. Is that censorship? Yeah. For the sake of uh, someone's life, I'd say, yeah. Why don't you just hire a lot of security and post a warning saying, beware if you enter here, well, there's a death threat against the speaker and you may be in the line of fire. <coughs> and if people want to come anyway, let them exercise their First Amendment right to listen. That would be a better solution if you hadn't finally ended up with an audience of more than three people. But uh, <coughs> I, I don't know. Well, that, I hear uh, Salman Rushdie spoke to quite a large crowd up at Columbia not long ago. Well, of course, it's a couple of years after this thing was issued. But right, right after it was issued, uh, he wasn't speaking uh, publicly. I don't think uh, any police department would have uh, allowed him to come out in the open. Probably uh, fear you'd get killed. Ms. Krug, would you hold this reading at your bookstore across the street? Oh, at my bookstore. You went out of the library business. Into <laughs> and the, I'm into the book business. The for-profit um, trade. He just dropped, he just dropped this hot author. You have an opportunity to have a reading. You might sell books because of this. Are you going to pick it up? Uh, probably with enough security but I mean a lot of security. How much is enough? Um, that's a question I can't answer, but I would uh, do everything I could to ensure that there was enough. It's getting pretty expensive <laughs> here, this First Amendment, Amendment business, isn't it? <laughs> the First Amendment business is always expensive. In fact, you might not sell enough books to pay for this security that night. That, that might be true. Are you going to hold the reading anyway? Probably. Why? Um, because I think it's important not to permit those kinds of threats to govern my existence, at least, that, that I, I do not believe that terrorism, although I happen to believe that terrorism is probably the most effective mechanism to change behavior, I refuse to be the one to permit it to change my behavior. And I think that more than anything else, um, I would hold the reading paying what I had to in order to preclude someone else telling me how to run my life. And it's pro pretty stupid probably, but I think that I would probably do that. Well, the uh, reading takes place, and this time there's no violence. But the threat still stands, Mr. Bradley. And as publisher at Genfield Press, publishes Jesse's book, uh, you've got a big question before you. Should you <coughs> issue the book as you planned in its paperback edition? And what's the threat against, uh, is the threat against me or the threat against the? Uh... Yes, the threats against you and your employees. If you publish the paperback edition, we're going to target you for death as well. 
police still have no good leads. Well, I'm in no great hurry to do it. I I mean, uh, you know, I've only got one life to give. I'm not sure I want to give it for that. And never mind a a, a nine-year-old child, and never mind all of that. I think I would, uh, you're you're forcing us to take absolutist positions here and and, uh, and not letting us explore alternatives. There are plenty of alternatives. There are alternatives coming up, Explore I understand. Away. Well, in the Rushdie case, I understand that his books are going to be published in this country. By a, by a pool of all of them. To spread the risk. Well, it does spread the risk. I see. So you're willing to take a little risk of death, but not a lot. Sure. You know, I really love my skin. And uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I mean, just to, just to, out, it's published. Yeah, and hardback. This, yeah. Oh, well, but the, Mr. Safer, you're uh, chairman of the board that uh, oversees the company that owns Genteel Press. Uh, you're interested in sales. Uh, what are you going to tell him? He's dragging his feet, not making up his mind. Okay. I think I, <coughs> I value, um, uh, although I'm overpaying Mr. Bradley, I do value <laughs> his judgment. <laughs> And I need that judgment in the future, and we're going to publish a lot more books uh, that um, are going to sell a lot of copies. And I have to take his editorial judgment, and, and by the way, his, his uh, judgment about his own security and the rest of the staff. I'm, I'm sorry, this, this is a really weak one, because the, the assumption is that it was in the Rushdie case, <coughs> there were a hundred million or more potential assassins involved. And uh, if the children of God uh, are as identifiable as that, or as big as that, surely the authorities would somehow... At that point, then your wish to publish would (coughs) yield. Of course. If there were enough of them. All right. Well, at this point, we're going to leave Utopia uh, and go back to the real world where some of these ideas came from. I just want to try to pull together some of the threads of the evening's discussion. Remember, we started out saying that there's a problem with government silencing speech, at least where there's no imminent danger of harm. But then we said that there can be other kinds of censorship in society, as long as it's not by the government. It's called editorial discretion when the newspaper doesn't run the ad. It's called policy judgments when the library doesn't choose the book. It may be called politics or decency when the NEA doesn't give the grant. Uh, But there are a lot of sources, our discussion has shown, of disincentives to speak freely. They don't all come from the government at the end of a billy club. They don't all come from the threat of a night in jail. They may come from costing you money. The threat of civil damages may dry up authors like Joe and Jesse and their publishers. They may come from not giving you the money in the first place, as in our NEA example. Uh, So to leave you for the evening with the thought we hope we've provoked with this little piece of improvisational theater, I'll just leave you with the thought that you must know censorship when you see it, even if it's censorship by other means.
Thank you and good night. Hello? Is there an open mic? Is there a question-answer section? Is there going to be question-answer? What?